welcome back to another podcast. We've got another special guest on, all the way from the Northern Hemisphere, all the way from just outside of Geneva, Andrew Glass from Viridius Capital. Andrew, thanks for coming along. Who are you? Thanks, thanks very much. So I'm, I'm also representing um, Viridius AI, so it's the, it's the group. We've got the two businesses there, just to be clear, too. It's not a very it's not a very Swiss sounding or even French sounding accent you've got there, Andrew. What's you want to give us a bit of a quick rundown of? Uh, yeah, you know, nah. Hey, <laughs> hey, how you going? You gotta love the yeah, nah, don't you? Right? Um, well, the butt on the end, but I'm not a Queenslander. No, I'm born and bred in Melbourne. Um, came through agri markets, um, then sort of travelled around the world, placed. Um, in Switzerland, Singapore, United States, and just kept bouncing around, um, and mostly in commodity markets. Also did a little bit um, in energy and in resources, um, and now we're in carbon markets, which is um, really fantastic, actually. Cool. Well, we're going to get a bit more info from you, so we'll, we'll leave the intro as that. But we've got the... Uh, I don't know if you listened to the podcast before, Andrew, uh, but we do have a warm-up psychological test for all our guests J- just to make sure that they're all compass mentis and uh, above board it's uh, it's it's actually a, an ag tech startup that we've developing uh, but basically we're going to ask you six questions or we're going to say six words or phrases and we just want the first thing that comes into your mind either one word or a short sentence uh, some people like to play it a bit thick and go on for about five minutes so we're just gonna we're gonna cut you off if you go too long so matt first up australian carbon price up black black pudding (laughs) haggis not bad actually don't mind a bit of haggis esg ESG is where the world is going. We have to take it seriously. And those that neglect taking it seriously will suffer in the long term. Uh, Global carbon markets. Uh, Complex, but necessary to our trajectory to a net zero and to to fix what we've done to this planet. Artificial intelligence. Extremely... um, positive um it can be used for both very good outcomes and also for nefarious outcomes um, we've, all, we've all seen the terminator <laughs> exactly <laughs> um but look i mean it's it's something that really turbocharges um development of new ideas and it can be extremely positive and that's the way we deploy it was that six i think so yeah, yeah it is because you started didn't you no you, i can't you remember now all right. Well, oh, must, there be, you go. must be, must be, must be. As you know, Andrew, this is a professionally run podcast. Um, and uh, right, oh, carbon markets, right? It's one of those ones, you, you said they're complex, yeah? Mm-hmm. Like Matt and I, Matt and I love markets, yeah? All sorts of markets, whatever it may be. There's only two markets I don't think I understand. And I think one of them I'm never going to understand, and that's NFTs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't think I want to understand them either. Uh, but carbon markets, I spent a bit of time trying to understand them. Tell us, tell us what is a carbon market? Give us a basic rundown. 
Uh, basically, we're trying to put a price on carbon, right? So you have two essential markets here. You have a compliance market, like the ACUs in Australia, um, and then you have the voluntary market. And the voluntary market is global, and it's, it is what it says on the tin. It is a, it's been developed through organisations that want to decarbonise and are making that commitment voluntarily. Um, and so these markets have developed very much driven outside of governments, when we talk about voluntary in particular, the compliance obviously is government um, mm. derived. So that's that's probably the biggest distinction between the two. And the reason I'd say it's, it's complex is because it's it's quite abstract, right? I mean, if we're used to commodity markets, which we I believe most people on the on the on the podcast listening would be familiar with, we're used to touching it and feeling it, right? I mean, it's great to go and talk to a farmer and to see the crop, and and it's there's something very tangible about that. If we take derivatives, already that's difficult for a lot of people to get their head around to hedge the physical. Um, but then this takes it to an extra dimension of abstractness, if you will. I mean, take for example preserving a forest from deforestation. Yep. Right. So you have to create a baseline in that case as to what kind of carbon that that forest is pulling in from the atmosphere. So the sequestration um, capacity of that forest, that creates the baseline. Then what if we were to cut it down and lose that forest, right? So it's kind of like a negative way of looking at it. And can, then can, can, we do, can, we do, can, can we just remember that point? Because I want to come back to that point about cutting mm -hmm. down rainforests in a little bit. So keep that as a note. But so, so it's an abstract, yeah? It's very it, abstract. It's kind of etheric. It's a, it's not really, nobody touches it. No, is, it, it a, is it a market, Andrew? That, is it <clears throat> traded on a particular platform or like how, how to, like you know, when you're saying about it's an abstract thing, you've got to do these kind of, you know, calculations of how much carbon is being captured by certain things and whatnot. But how, how, does, how does the market actually work from a physical sense in terms of the trading of a, a carbon credit or a price? Well, so most of it's most of it occurs um, OTC, right? Bilateral transactions, often under NDAs. Um, o OTC, think, OTC is over the counter, so it's like a over the counter. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Um, and you know, obviously bilateral is is between two counterparties, and under NDAs, uh, non disclosure agreement, right? Um, <clears throat> if we think back to the nascent stage of any market, right? It's it's generally it starts with opacity, which mm -hmm. is the cash cow for the few in the know, right? Yep. Um, and then it goes through an evolution phase. Um, and it eventually gets to the point of mature markets, which we all understand from, from grain markets, right, where you've got hedging mechanisms, you've got options, you've got all kinds of financial tools to manage your risk, and it's very mature. Um, and margins are very small as a result, right? But this one, because of the way it's been formed, um, it is still at the very nascent stages while evolving. So we have a few different exchanges that have popped up in the voluntary carbon market space. And also the word exchange is used pretty loosely, right? Yeah. Because we don't have margin calls and stuff wrapped in as well. So they're more like bulletin boards in a lot of cases. Yeah, classified. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's kind of evolving. Now, the compliance space is a little bit different. You have the EUA market um, over in Europe, which is which is very transparent. There's plenty of liquidity on it. That's, that's a different kind of thing, right? That's, and, that's, you know, and that's on ICE, is that right? Exactly. The ICE platform yeah. is there, which we're all familiar with. Um, that's a more mature place, right? But that's, that's straight carbon. That's, that's a carrot and stick approach applied by the EU, um, which is very simple. In the voluntary space, each one of these projects is very different. 
Um, there's a range of vintages for each one, and they have different impacts. So, so, the, so these voluntary ones. So, so basically, you're kind of like, I feel a bit like when we're t- remember we we're talking to Ryan a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and he was kind of like a matchmaker, Cupid, mm-hmm. a Cupid, I guess. So you kind of yep. like, effectively, you've got, a, let's say, a clothing company, yeah, Fragment Sick, you know, wants to be carbon neutral. So they might come to you and say, right, find me a project, and that project could be anything. It could be forestry. It could be biodigester on a farm it could be whatever it may be yeah as long as it sequesters or removes carbon from the atmosphere and then you would say right well here's here's a partner here's a thousand tons of carbon per year that's going to sequester is that, is that what you kind of do in, in labor's yeah, terms look, yeah look i mean it, uh, take a corporate right so a corporate comes to us and says Look, we've got our compliance requirements, let's say, so let's put that to one side. We're interested in working with you on the voluntary markets. Now, what we would ask them, it's, like we said, complex, right? So we ask them for things like the geography. Where would they like the project to be based? You know, maybe Southeast Asia, right, for example. Great. Well, that's one variable we've cut down. Um, we only want vintages no, no earlier than 2018. Great, that's another another variable. And then what we get into is the SDGs, for example, so the Sustainable Development Goals, which is the framework. That's that's the UN thing, yeah? Yeah, exactly, right? There's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Um, They've been around for six or seven years, and they they really form the base to measure ESG, okay, the Environment, Society and Governance Framework. And each one of these projects has a variety of these wrapped into it, and it's different. So we will ask also the corporate, what's their... What's their sustainability policy look like? And what commitments have they made to their stakeholders in that reporting? And then we can find projects that fit the sustainability goals that they have as defined by the 17 SDGs, right, embedded in the project. Take something like um, avoided deforestation in in Indonesia. Yep. Um, Then what you're getting in there, you're getting biodiversity as an SDG embedded in it. So if a company's made a commitment to E, within the ESG profile to their stakeholders. And we say stakeholders too, because it's not just about shareholders. It's about banks, it's about financiers, it's about retaining and attracting the best talent employees as well, because people want to work with a purpose. Um, so it's, it's that's why we talk about stakeholders, but the, the ESG commitment they make, we then align those projects to what they're trying to achieve, if that makes sense. With, with that, with that, so that corporate, so to speak, you, and you mentioned about the corporate could be in one country as well, but be looking at projects elsewhere in another country. Is there, and you mentioned about those, you know, sustainable development goals that get projects get measured against certain goals, say. Do, does it matter sometimes where the the company that's trying to chase after this carbon credit, so to speak, where they're domiciled, does that does that change sometimes how the projects are viewed or is there a standard global benchmark that is being met or, or can it be different? Say if the company's in the US, it'll, their, their project they're purchasing will get treated differently under US legislation than if you're in Australia or if you're in France or whatever. Do you know so what I mean? So basically is one, is one tonne of carbon the same? Regardless. Yeah, across. Yeah, exactly. Is, is, is Are these projects viewed the same way globally or are there different regionalities to it in terms of how a, a relative government looks at it and, 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 and assesses that particular project? Yeah, but, this gonna... but, but this isn't government. This is voluntary, isn't it? It's a voluntary yeah, one, yeah. So so me and you, Matt, yeah? We, yeah. we, we run an analytical business, yeah? Yeah. So, sorry, Andrew, if I'm 
No, that's fine. That's fine. Go for it. I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll afterwards. And, and you, you can tell us are wrong. But, he'll, but he'll, correct, he'll correct you afterwards. I'll, I'll, right? I'll correct you in a minute, Andrew. Yeah? But, uh, I expect you to be fully right, by the way. So either way, either way, and one Andrew is going to be right on this. We will know either, sure. way, either way, one Andrew is going to be correct on this. Uh, the one with the Aussie accent, the Ocker guy, or the, 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 the jock. But anyway, but so, so basically, it's down to that individual business what they choose, isn't it? Whether they like a project or not like a project is not down to any government intervention if it's voluntary. You're spot on, right? Yes. So you, you kind of got to put those two things. You got to, they're, they're two buckets, right? You've got the compliance market, which is government, right? It's like yeah. Well, maybe I'm, I'm referring more to the yeah. compliance market. So that's a totally different thing to what you're just talking about a, a corporate just doing something and then being able to kind of demonstrate this is what we've done. Doing it out of the goodness of the heart, Matt. Well, no, they're doing it for a reason, of course. Well, oh, goodness of the heart. Nice guys. Yeah, no, look at <laughs> There you go. I used it. Yeah, no. Um, it's <laughs> been <laughs> jumping on a call with Aussies. Um, so the, the, thing, the thing is, is they're not doing it, often not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. This is being pushed by investors, right? It's being pushed by, there's a group I'd recommend you have a look at called Transition Pathway Initiative. Yep. Um, follow them on, on LinkedIn or whatever. There's guy Adam Matthews is the co-chair of it. Those guys represent 40 trillion of AUM now, right? They are pushing very, very hard on decarbonisation and ESG. Um, this is no longer about Greenpeace buying five shares and banging drums at an AGM. Yeah. Right, if we go back the decades. This is, this is real. Um, this is not going away. Um, even, even with inflation on our doorstep, um, coming, well, we're already feeling it, right? The energy price is going up. I mean, here in Europe, we feel it acutely with what's going on with the tragedy in Ukraine mm. and the impact of Russian energy. This is not going away. There was a question mark over it, um, but the decarbonisation journey, we're far too committed to it. So, and what I'm saying with guys like the TPI, the Transition Pathway Initiative, is they force boards and executives in these kind of big organisations, um, FTSE 100 companies, they demand their, their, them to take this seriously, right? So it's not, it's not coming just out of the goodness of their heart. Um, they can see the benefits and the challenges to their businesses moving forward if they don't take this seriously, is what so, I, which was the response I gave to you when you mentioned ESG earlier on. So it's, right? so it's, it's a combination of carrot and stick, really, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's basically, it's, absolutely. it's sort of, it's sort of, they're just a donkey in the middle, and that's it. But then, but the mark, but the market still determines the overall price of carbon, though. Yeah, the, the market, the market determines that, right? I mean, the market um, in the voluntary space is, it's, I wouldn't say it's liquid right now, but it's getting towards that, and that's one of the things that our tech business helps try to enable um, with transparency around price. Um, so we have a technology that, that no one else has really got to be able to show what fair market value is for any of these projects, right? Which is, as we will all know <laughs> from mature markets, is an absolute critical enabler of bringing participation of capital markets into it, getting liquidity, which begets more transparency. And then we've really got this thing humming along, right? Um, and we're getting fair price, making it all the way to, to the communities, by the way, that are putting these projects into place in many of these places. And we talk about moving capital to the global south too and supporting these, these communities. Um, this is another vector to be able to do that through the voluntary carbon markets as well. So it's real, it's not going away. Um, it is, it is um, highly impactful, not just from a carbon perspective, but from that ESG perspective. 
can I can I can I ask a naive question? Uh, so carbon's carbon, yeah. One ton of carbon is a ton of carbon, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's there's no quality differentiation on the actual physical chemical, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just carbon. Carbon dioxide is carbon dioxide, yeah. Yep. So, you know, one part carbon, two parts oxygen, yeah. But in this case, it seems more than carbon. If you're talking about the 17 or 16, whatever it is, UN SDGs, yeah? Yeah. But obviously, they're not necessarily just paying for the carbon in this case. There's, it's almost like, okay, a car's a car, yeah? But there's a big mm-hmm. difference between a, a, a ladder and a Bentley. Whereas yes. in this case, you could package up a product, let's call mm-hmm. it a product or a book that says, we've got you know, this Indonesian rainforest that we're going to save, we're going to save a bunch of orangutans. We're also going to put some kids into school. We're also going to have women employed to manage it. So we suddenly we've got all these SDG ticks, tick, 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 tick. Mm-hmm. So that is more valuable than we've got a pig farm in Germany and we're going to take all this waste shit and then use it to burn. And that's it. There's no ESG. So kind of, it's you're bundling up. It's, it's not really. It's is carbon the thing, or is it the actual ESG and the SDGs that is actually more important? Carbon almost seems in the conversation to be a side, or or a part of it. Oh, look, I mean, you're hitting it. it's very good. That's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, carbon is the vector. Also, it's definitely carbon, it, right? Well, ca- carbon, carbon's, carbon's, carbon's the quantifiable thing you can get, but yes, the other parts are sort of qualitative i would say well what we've what we've seen is the the other parts of these projects and this is why we we really you know we love operating in the zone of the voluntary carbon space because it has all these additional impacts right these Hmm. these what they call the charismatic components which are wrapped into these projects um so yes a project like you take those two that you gave the example of great example right um we get a lot of thank you (laughs) we get a lot of companies that are chasing the e Right? They want to take a mining company. They're normally not too bad on S society because they invest in the local communities, rural communities where they operate. They put in infrastructure, schools, healthcare, etc. Um, where they often fall down is E. S, not too bad at right, um, with some notable exceptions. Governance would uh, be fine. Yeah. Um, governance should be fine. Yes, doing all the KYCs and all the rest of it. Um, but at the end of the day, the E is difficult for them. So they might want to have projects like that. So they will pay more for those kind of projects. Now, when they retire, now this is an important factor too, right? You retire those carbon units against your emissions. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you take them out of circulation. It's like the corn's been eaten by the pig and the pig's been, you know, bacon and it's eaten, end of story, right? That's the end of the value chain when you retire these carbon credits against your own emissions. Now, when you retire a carbon credit from that avoided deforestation in Indonesia, you can also claim the SDGs attached to that. In your sustainability report, that retiring of that carbon unit which you've paid for also allows you to claim that SDG where you have you know, basically protected biodiversity within that ecosystem. Right? So, so you can claim those. Now, that's worth more. Mm-hmm. That's why we would see... It's carbon a, plus. It's a carbon plus, right? Exactly. But the carbon unit is the base unit. Mm-hmm. And this is where what, what we've done with our pricing model too, is to then we can see what each one of the SDGs are actually worth on these projects. So you actually can quantify the value that the market is willing to pay for each one of these SDGs. And something like biodiversity is highly sought after. Well, um, that, that's interesting because in, in Australia, 
well, dependent on the government, but I imagine they'll follow through with it. They are looking at biodiversity certification schemes mm-hmm. uh, with the same idea is to measure biodiversity, which I, I have no idea how they do it, but measuring the number of insects, birds, native fauna inside a particular scheme. So you mix carbon and biodiversity, which is quite an interesting sort of process. I'm just not mm-hmm. sure how they'll actually do it. And that would be, we've, we've tried to get Oscar Pierce on the podcast a few times, but he's too scared to talk uh, publicly. Uh, Andrew, Andrew, you... In, you which one? Up, I remember, no, Andrew Whitelaw, Andrew Whitelaw. Yep. Uh, I recall one of your fabulous um, charts you put on Twitter one time showing, I think it was... So, so many of them. So many, I know, there's lots, there's lots. Is it, um, if, if it's it, not in the last 24 hours, it's... You've forgotten it. It's, it's forgotten um, it. No, no, it was one that was looking at, it was plotting the Australian carbon price versus the European carbon price, and they were quite distinctly different, right, in terms of those two prices. Yeah, yeah, that, that was that was a question I had as well. Is, yeah, well, well, you, you ask know, it then. No, no, go on, go on. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, well, basically going to say, what, how is it that, like you said before, I thought you were going to it when you were saying about carbon as carbon, right? It's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of... <clears throat> One one ton of carbon is one ton of carbon, but it's priced if it's priced differently in Europe and Australia. It's just basis, isn't it, mate? How, well, how, but, well, how does that work? Explain why why that can happen. Why there's no arbitrage opportunities where you can buy well, there's buy buy Aussie carbon and then go long. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, but, one but, but, word. But, one word. Fungibility. Right. Okay. Right? We all get that. Yeah, but, but they're non they're non fungible, right? Right. But it's carbon. Another reason too that but it's, yeah, but it's, it's carbon, it's carbon, but it's non fungible. Those two markets operate independently separate. of each other, right? Right. Okay. The difference right. demand demand analytics. They are absolutely non fungible. Um, and for, for 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 those listening, include my mother, who isn't an economist. <laughs> fungible means a product that is completely replaceable with one another. Yeah. i.e. one ton of gold is the same in Mexico is the same as one ton of gold in Scotland. Mm. Apart from Scotland, we probably water it down. But <laughs> anyway, so so they're not so then so that, and that was the question I had was if one ton of carbon in carbon dioxide in Australia is not the same as one ton of carbon dioxide in Europe. So ACCU versus ICE futures, they are not comparable. They're not fungible, right? I mean, it's still a supply and demand, and you've still got to deal with the supply and demand within the ecosystem that that, that market operates, right? And if it's non-fungible, they're separate. They're, 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 you think about the old Venn diagram, right? They're two separate. They're no, there's no crossover whatsoever. Now, it, what's interesting it, too... So, 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 so our trade, Matt, we're fucked. I mean, we're screwed. And that we can't uh, go along on those carbon credits, expecting them to... to to, to narrow in is not going to work. Well, I'm just wondering, yeah. is, there, Bankrupt. is there... I knew, I knew, we, there, should, we, knew we should have done those NFTs. Yeah. Um, is, there, is the long-term goal, though, for this market to be a market that is fungible and global? Like as in, or it's never, or it's never going to get that way because of the complexities of each of the individual kind of regional markets. But but, is, but are we talking about two different things? Are we talking the voluntary market versus the compliance market? Yeah. Okay, let me answer that. Um, there is plumbing that is opening up between some compliance markets and some vol- and some voluntary projects. Right, the plumbing diameter taking Singapore at the moment only five percent of the compliance market can be fulfilled with projects specific projects from the voluntary carbon market. Right, so the plumbing is very narrow. 
call it five centimeter diameter, right? The 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 market, the participants in the market feel that as time moves on, we should see that plumbing diameter significantly increase across different compliance markets. Then we start to build in fungibility. So, and so, so, so supply should increase. Supply of carbon credits should increase. To, yeah, there should be there should be movement between the two different markets, right? But particularly, it would be from voluntary into compliance, right? So, so if you're fulfilling your compliance obligations within your jurisdictional you know, requirements, then you can go and buy some voluntary to retire those against your emissions, as opposed to just something like the EUA market or you know, in the case of Singapore as well. So, but price, price is going to have to be relative and make it sensible as well right so there is mechanisms being opened up for that and that will so the feeling is that we the hypothesis should we say is that we see these two markets more and more collide together where we start to get more some more regulation and structure um, around the voluntary market to make it more applicable into the compliance market now that makes complete sense and this is why look we started the fund so you can so you, so you can move back and forth between the two. So you you could well, so you, you could well, be these these just I mean just to be clear I mean the, the, we talked about the charismatic components of this project that is a hell of a lot better than carrot stick approach when you've got an EUA market trading let's say eighty euros um, give or take just to choose a round number and you've got these compliance markets high impact compliance uh, sorry not um, voluntary market projects that are trading you know well below twenty euros. Um, per tonne of carbon, but they've got all of these additional SDGs. There's not a single SDG embedded, apart from climate action, sorry, number 13, in the compliance market like an EU mm. market. So <clears throat> the price differential is ridiculous, but, but, but you need to have but, the ability but, to but, but, but those companies that have voluntarily taken out a carbon credit, let's, let's call them carbon plus or voluntary carbon, they could, mm. in effect, that sits on their balance sheet effectively. And in future, they could potentially sell into the compliance market. Let's say Jimmy, the shoemaker, has had a bad year. And mm. he says, right, we're, 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 we're screwed here. They could turn around and say, right, oh, let's, uh, let's sell off a few carbon credits into the compliance market. If they wanted to, in future. In the fu- in the future, maybe yeah. Is yeah. that? But that's what that's where I'm getting at as well. Is that it, is the participants in the market currently? Is the general view that though, that that will become, you know, kind of that those markets will come together like the 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 voluntary and the compliance one will come and then it will be able to be something that can be kind of openly traded more freely across countries where there's a more of a. I mean, I mean you might still have some level of basis, Andrew, as you, to use the word you used to describe it, but, you know, that the markets will become more fungible or interlinked to some degree. Is that the plan down the track to have that? I, I, look, I mean, like I said earlier, it's a hypothesis. I wouldn't say it's a specific plan, right? These two markets are still operating very separately. Um, and the hypothesis is because we're already seeing some, some of the plumbing start to open up, right? And once you, once, once you open that, you start to see some more flow and, and it should, it should we believe, increase. Look, I mean, another indicator, too, of where this market's going, I like to think of the big trade houses, big global trade houses, you know, where they be, Traff, Mercuria, Vital, you know, all of those ones that, that you guys know um, and the listeners know. I consider them a bit like street dogs, right? They can smell fear and they understand a threat to their business model very acutely and they manoeuvre very, very fast. Their survival instincts are super sharp. They can also smell an opportunity. And they are massively tooling up, both from a capital 
perspective and resources perspective and putting some of their brightest minds across into building their capacity um, in, in carbon markets and also renewables, et cetera, but in the, in the, in the decarbonisation zone. So they're moving from being you know, almost 100% focused on fossil fuels, right? They're pivoting and they're already pivoting and they're putting a huge amount into this. So if the hypothesis stands too that they're like street dogs and they can smell it, they are a barometer of where we're going and it's very real. Whether it be the Transition Pathway Initiative putting pressure on boards and executives and FTSE 100 companies or whether it be the trade houses, every indicator is where we're going on this is it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is why we also believe that the... And, and they're all talking about this fungibility starting to open up between the two markets. Um, and we think it's... You know, look, it... it there are still issues with it, right? And, and there is still sort of fat tail risk, um, particularly in the voluntary carbon market. There are some people that, you know, try and effectively undermine it. Um, unfortunately, people like Greenpeace. But look, we, we will take that conversation in time one, but some people are you know, pretty belligerent about fighting against it. So, um, so, so going back to, to the VITALs and the big energy trading houses and, and whatnot. Mm. So... The smart move, really, like it's, it's common sense, yeah? At the mm. moment, we can see the way governments around the world are going. We've seen the election two weeks ago in Australia. A lot really of it will, is a good example of, you know, environmentalism. And I've, it says, I don't really care about environmentalism. It's, it doesn't matter if you believe or don't believe. I think we said this last podcast as well. It is what the general population believes. And that is what mm. changes policy. And... The reality is that it's better off getting into these voluntary schemes just now, getting cheap carbon. And then as more compliance comes in, because this is the thing you mentioned about the, the, the sort of let's call it, let's go back to the plumbing, the tube increasing mm. to allow the transfer of between voluntary and compliance and whatnot. But on the other, and so that will increase the change of supply from voluntary to compliance and also a bit of an intermix between the two and arbitrage opportunities. But what about the, the demand? Like supply is increasing because there's more carbon projects coming off and blah, blah, blah. But the demand must be increasing as well because there are more and more uh, industries which have been placed down the compliance route. There are more companies that over time will voluntarily, even if the compliance isn't there, they'll want to go down that route. Is there a case that there's only so much carbon you can sequester? Demand must be increasing pretty strongly. Like it has increased in the last 10 years, but in 10 years, it would be, you'd have to think it would be significantly higher than it is now, demand-wise. Oh, mate, look, you're spot on. We see demand grossly outstripping supply, right? I mean, particularly for things like nature-based solutions. We're seeing companies pay up for these significantly. A lot of companies too. Um, look, I mean, they're making commitments to 2040, 2050. Um, yeah, it's far beyond the lifetime, um, yeah, career lifetime, if not lifetime full stop, of executives and boards that are making these commitments, right? So we also think you've got to dilute some of that um, those commitments being made because of you know because of what I just said then, but apart from that, a lot of them don't even realise yet. I think the importance of offsets are going to be part of that trajectory to their commitments, and they're going to have to build them in. So a lot of them are either sort of slow pedalling on it at the moment, or if they are very serious in delivering it, they're trying to engineer their way to it. So for example, and and this is this is really important actually. These commitments need to first and foremost be your own decarbonisation, 
you need to have a credible journey to decarbonize your own business, be it goods or services or whatever you're in, right? So that's first, second, third, fourth to 10th priority. The offsets are an adjunct to that. Now, what tends to happen is in the early days, you can get some very quick wins, right? You can electrify your fleet. So you can get some, so it tends to be sort of, you know, very fast fall, but then you're going to get to a point if you're realistic about this, that if you so take so much you can carbon, law yeah. of diminishing law of diminishing returns, what you're saying, when yeah. as you do stuff, you get some low hanging fruit, and then all of a sudden it gets trickier and trickier. Exactly, and the cost of doing it becomes more and more expensive. So if you can take your decarbonisation journey from let's say 100 units today when you do your assessment down to 40 units by 2040, preferably 2030, let's say. That's a cracker. Well done, should be celebrated. But what do you do with that last 40 units? This is where the carbon offset market comes in, right? And the sooner you start participating in that market, the sooner you start the journey internally, people start to understand the price of carbon. They start to have it in their thinking, whether it be M&A activity, whatever they're choosing to do. Um, and it becomes something that can be a competitive advantage now. And you can even offer these as offsets to delivering your product to your client base as well. It's like an add-on effectively. I can decarbonize the corn I'm delivering to you or the soybeans or the wheat or whatever it might be, right? All the way to your doorstep through what we call scope three. Now, what we also do is as we're doing that decarbonization journey is you're giving that price of carbon starting to be inside the organization, right? So you've, you're feeling what the value of carbon really is in all your decision-making process. And we will get to a point of time where what we believe is that we'll get to that inflection point where this is no longer a potential competitive advantage. It's now the norm. If you're not doing it, if you dragged your feet on this, then you will be incurring a discount. And at the worst end, it's a Kodak moment for you. But, but in, in, in Europe, forgive me if I'm wrong on this, that would already be the case with the energy providers, that carbon would be a major part of the switching costs from gas to coal and whatnot at the moment. Obviously, yeah, that's, yeah, that's compliance, but, it, but carbon would be up there as part of the, the calculation. Yes, definitely. And so I, just got a, I guess I've got a question about like the whole point of, of carbon trading schemes yeah, from, from a philosophical point of view is to reduce the amount of carbon Emitted, yeah, and you actually yes. an you answered half of the question because uh, when my question was about well, the whole point of it is is to really the higher carbon price gets, well, the better it is to reduce the carbon that you're emitting as a business. Yeah? Yes, but there's only like you say, there's only so far you can go. Is there a point when carbon prices start to snake back down because we've done so much, or is it just inevitability that carbon? will be at a relatively sort of strong level into the future. Because Look, because, because if every company decarbonized to, let, let's say 75%, I'm just going to pick a number, 75% decarbonization is achievable for most companies, yeah? In theory. Um, if every company that emitted got to that level, electrification, taking like the state, green, get, green, get, power, green power, green power, you know, whatever, all getting rid of the lifts and using stairs or whatever it may be, yeah? Uh, at that point, does carbon start to slide down in the demand stake or is it just so many companies that it doesn't really make a huge difference? There is so many companies still to come to this market. Like I said, you know, so many of them are just trying, they're either pushing it out, right? They're kicking the can down the road or they're trying to decarbonize their own as a priority, which is great. 
right? Mm-hmm. So they're trying to engineer their way to it. A lot of mining companies doing that at the moment. So they haven't come to the offset market yet. They haven't come to the realisation. <laughs> they're kind of kicking that can down the road too because it's a cost for them as well. Yeah. So there is so much latent demand in the ones who've already made the commitment, but also the ones that haven't made the commitment yet, right? So we see it is it is huge. And we can't just do this with nature-based solutions. And you'll get this debate out there about carbon capture, right? yeah. so engineering carbon capture, which is great, awesome, fantastic. Hardly any SDGs attached to it, but we also need to protect biodiversity. So, And you'll get these people argue, should it be this one or this one? Well, no, it's both. It's all of it. Right? It's, just... it's all of it. And the demand, though, we see coming to this market, we can't supply enough projects right now for the demand that's coming now, let alone what we see coming to this market. So, look, we see it. It's I mean, the future of this market. People have talked in the hundreds of dollars. I mean, there's plenty of reports out there per tonne of carbon right, in, in the voluntary space. And frankly, it should be at a pre- realistically, it should be at a premium to the EUA market, right? Not multiples cheaper because of the additionality that it brings. And we look, as far as humanity is concerned, and, and, you know, we need to protect biodiversity and we're decimating it at a rate of knots. So you know, these projects also embed that protection of biodiversity. And it allows these communities, I mean, putting a value on forest still standing as opposed to logged, that's how you keep a forest standing, right? We live in a capitalist world and it's not changing anytime soon. People can argue against that, whatever, but it's the best of a bunch of systems we've got. So given that as a baseline, as a foundational argument, then we need to put a value on a forest standing. So I'm just going to destroy that, yeah? <laughs> before you do, I just want to. Before you do destroy it, I just want to say how, like, because because Andrew, so you and I both came out of that financial markets commodity trading background. So which Andrew? Just, uh, Andrew Glass. Now I'm talking to. Um, just call me Glassy. It's easy. Yeah, Glassy. Okay, Glassy. So so and in, and indeed, off before we started this, we discussed that we'd worked in a similar or the same organisation in different parts before at different times. So we know similar same peoples. Um, but it just is really funny to hear someone with clearly a markets background and a you know commodity trading type background using the phrase that we have to see more biodiversity. I never thought I'd I'd ever you know come it, come full circle to see someone in from a markets background saying those kind of things really. But um, yeah, just it's, it just struck struck me as funny because you're clearly a very markets orientated person. But you know then to say how how poorly uh, we're treating biodiversity globally is uh, is a, yeah kind of like a yeah, it's an interesting kind of dichotomy. <laughs> yeah, well, many of, many of us have had that epiphany, right? I mean, it's and and honestly, I, I frankly I love it. Extremely passionate about it. I mean, I got young kids and stuff as well, and it's great to be able to do something that's actually positive, right? So, um, it's where we can use our skill sets too to facilitate that and enable doing these positive things to keep a you know keep a forest standing. So, I mean, it doesn't doesn't take much to notice the lack of bees that we have around all kind. I mean, we all read it, right? I mean, the biodiversity is a massive issue. So, but it is also just it's a market, it's just like any other yeah. market as well. Really, it's got different different factors, but it's a market with supply and demand fundamentals. I'm going to pitch a project to you, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to you're going to destroy. You're destroying. No, it's a discussion I had at a conference a few weeks ago. Um, Shiva the destroyer, come on. (laughs) So, so right, additionality, yeah? Yeah. Farmer gets paid for additionality, yeah? Because you Mm -hmm. can't measure what you haven't measured previously, yeah? Right? Mm -hmm. So a forest, a forest sequesters most of its carbon in the first 35 years, give or take, yeah? I think it's the stats. Mm -hmm. So I've got a forest, yeah? You know, 
nice, beautiful red gums, koalas floating around and jumping from tree to tree and whatnot. But it's 150 odd years old, yeah? Mm-hmm. It's not really sequestering all that carbon. How about I cut it down, right? I burn it to the ground. And then we put a new plantation and that will sequester a lot of carbon. Is that good or bad? Will, will yeah, you invest? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No, 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 no. You but, have to, what you're getting at there is, is a significant challenge. It's a moral challenge. Yeah, yeah. But for the voluntary carbon market, it's always been that challenge, right? It, and, and, and we call that a baseline challenge. Hmm. Right. I mean, because what is the baseline that you're starting with? Now, that forest that's already standing, by the way, has a whole ecosystem embedded in there as well. That forest standing is still sequestering carbon every single year. I mean, those plants are still and trees are still sequestering the carbon. But, so, le- but less than new forests. Uh, yeah, less than a new forest if it's established, but it has all this other additionality wrapped in it as well, right, from the biodiversity perspective. So, so we I, want to preserve so, that forest. So I guess that's where that works in a voluntary system where, let's say, Nike or Adidas is willing to pay for that. Whereas in a mm-hmm. compliance, we don't give a monkeys about that. All we care about is the carbon credits, potentially. Yeah, but look. I, 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 that's, that's why I don't understand why the voluntary market with additional benefits is still it's still it's priceless cheaper than yeah. um, a, a compliance which is just carbon so i don't understand yeah, why carbon if you've gone if you've gone in there and logged that deliberately and then replanted and then put your hand out for carbon credits the certification companies and they are the absolute you know fundamental critical enablers of this because they need to go in and certify that they will look at the history of that land and what you've done to that land they won't issue the credits for for that Right. Take, take, I'll give you an even more simple. I'll give you a more simple one. Let's say you're in Southeast Asia, you're the Ministry of the Environmental Forestry in, the, in, in Southeast Asia. You've got a state forest, right? Mm-hmm. You then decide to regazette it as available for logging. And then you put your hand out to the international carbon market and say, I'm threatening this forest will get logged unless you pay me for carbon credits. Now, that they will not get certification of the forest for carbon credits because it was a state forest, right? And they're trying. We do not want to encourage that behaviour at all. Yeah. Okay. What about if it's a, what about if it's a natural? What about if it's a natural disaster like a bushfire that wipes out all of that forest? So it wasn't something you've done. You haven't cut it down, so to speak. Well, that's different, isn't it? That's just revegetation. That's- yeah, that's different. That's different. Well, you damn, you damn well hope that there wasn't nefarious, you know. <laughs> that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yes, I knew <laughs> that might have been where you were coming from. <laughs> but, 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 but in all seriousness, that was I was at a, I was presenting at a carbon forum a few weeks ago, and and that was one of the the questions that quite a lot of presenters came up with was the moral hazard with these carbon projects, and and that is something that has to be fixed because the whole point of it is to actually help the environment, not necessarily just to make a, a quick buck from it. Another question I had as well, and it's a question I get raised a lot when we talk about it with, with more so with farmers than anything. Mm. And, and it comes back to that voluntary sort of sector as well. A lot of these companies are voluntarily getting ahead of the boat, I guess, so to speak, mm-hmm. and, and getting in before that ship sails, getting cheap credits. Uh, but from a farmer, let's say you're a farmer and you've got, you know, a bit of land that is, you know, crap land or whatever that you just, you've got to put some trees on, you can sequester some carbon. Uh, is there the opportunity there? Are you, oh, sorry, 
are you better selling those carbon credits or are you better off actually uh, keeping them because you might need them in future? Because like you said earlier on, you know, you might be able to sell your corn, soybeans, whatever, and say, oh, here's mm -hmm. my carbon neutrality. But you also might have to, obviously, farms got a lot of fertilizer, a lot of chemicals, a lot of diesel. And you don't have to, you don't have to give any advice or you don't have to, you know, nobody's going to hold you to it apart from the half million people that listen to this podcast. Uh, should they be keeping them or should they be selling them, those carbon credits? If you're a farmer, may they need them in the future, I guess. Look, I mean, we, we, we generally feel that the market is probably heading north, right? Um, this is why when you, you know, ask for the one-word answers with your six questions at the start, I said up. Um, and therefore, the farmer can hold on to them, I'd suggest. Um, but by the same token, these credits, we, we talk about them as being an inverse of a wine cellar, right? They get stale. So the older these credits get, um, so if they're issued in 2018, as we move into, I don't know, 2024, 25, 26, a 2018 vintage issued credit loses its marketability as much. And it's not to say that there's any change in the ton of carbon, right? At the time it was issued and verified and, you know, everything's, everything's hunky-dory, right? But the thing is that the market much prefers the most recent vintage right? Because it feels like more additionality. And there's perception and reality here, right? So the perception is that it has more additionality. And let's be clear too, is that is that a company that is retiring these credits against their footprint um, will want those too, because any perception of greenwashing or um, using old credits because they're cheaper, and then an NGO or a journalist come out and sort of claim that they're not, they're not contributing any additionality, that's worse than doing nothing almost. For the brand, for the company, right? Yeah. So, do, while I would say, while it's an answer, yes, the farm could hold on to them and use them to be able to sell carbon neutral wheat. Um, is the market there? Or, yet? or, or offset yeah. their own fertilizer? Or offset their or, own or, fertilizer? Or, but you know, ideally, they could wrap it up and say, you know, this is carbon neutral wheat. Here's the certificate that goes along with the delivery of wheat. This is carbon neutral, right? So you retire this against the against the wheat delivery. That's a carbon neutral that runs through the system. It can be commingled. The physical can be commingled, but you've got that certificate attached to it. So you know whether it's Cargill or whoever can sell that to its client base as carbon neutral wheat. So yes, okay, and you should get a premium for that, obviously. Um, whether or whether he sells it attached to the wheat or whether he sells it to the market, um, but he doesn't want to sit on them and sit on them and sit on them. I mean, yeah. otherwise they'll get stale, right? Okay, I didn't realize Does that. Answer your question. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize. I didn't. Was. I didn't even know there was a vintage attached to some of these kind of credit issues as well. So Matt didn't even like, realize there's a vintage to wine. There's nothing in the cellar. It, 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 it doesn't 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 last that long, and when it's no. in a box box, it doesn't usually have the year on it. <laughs> no, 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 that's true as well. Straight from the goon, straight from the goon bag. Right? So yeah. Yeah. chateau cardboard. But the. Uh, it is complex, though, isn't it? But it's not. It isn't that complex, really. It's when you, when you when, like you've you've explained it pretty well in terms of it's not actually that complex. It's just another additional. It's an additional thing that farmers have to think about, or or or, or business in general has to think about. 
Uh, but it's, it's an not- opportunity, though. Let's not let's not. Uh, it's an additional opportunity for farmers, right? And I think that's the key for 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 the farmers that are listening, and for those in the in, in agri business. This is another source of income. You go into regenerative farming, you can earn carbon credits, right? You can still farm. Um, then you can get to the issue that New Zealand's got, for example, where they've got people going into regenerative farming and moving livestock off, off their property, for example, and the Meat and Livestock Association is extremely worried about employment and okay. where their industry is going because of carbon markets, right? So, so, so you have, again, there's another degree of complexity to wrap into it as well. Um, but it, it is another source of income and, and for the farmer to look at. It's great, but be very careful. You know, if a farmer thinks he can degrade his land and then create a very low bar baseline, and then build and then up carbon credits, right? Which I've heard discussed. It wasn't the, me. The certification <laughs> companies are all over that, right? I mean, you won't get the credits issued, so be very, very careful. Mm. So you can't get the tractor and the chain out and just bulldoze over a whole heap of little trees somewhere and then come back and say I'm replanting. No, nope. won't be allowed. Well, the other thing, too, is you've unless, got all of the satellite can... technology, which is mapping that, too, right? There's companies out there that are doing this as a second level of certification, verification, is they can go back in time and they can look at, or they not can, they do and are, looking back in time over land satellite imagery to see exactly what you just talked about, right? We used to do that <clears throat> two, well, 10 years ago with the Renewable Energy Directive for Palm or Canola. Mm-hmm. Canola in Australia is, is still the way we do that in terms of finding out was that land cleared or not. Generally, it's, mm-hmm. in Australia, it's generally been cleared for a long time. But yeah. it, it is interesting. I guess it is something, and it is an opportunity. Uh, but I just wonder whether the industry is actually aware enough about the issues because it's, it's, it's not new. Like carbon's been around for, or carbon trading's been around for 12 years. In, in maybe maybe slightly more, but it yeah, seems fine. to be it seems to be picking up a fair bit more attention than it had previously uh, received. So, well, and like like I was saying earlier, right? This is this is everywhere now. It's perv- well, for want of a better term, it's pervasive, right? Um, <clears throat> everyone's aware of it. I mean, you pick up main global mainstream journals like The Economist every single week. Um, there's big pieces on sustainability, decarbonisation. Listen to the BBC Global News, right? And it's on every single news report um, about about climate, about decarbonisation. I mean, roll back ten years, we weren't anywhere near that. So this is this is in everything now. It's in people's psyche. The danger, the danger to the market, though, just you know, to talk a little bit about a fat tail event, is that, and that's why kind of the Australian election has been really interesting. Um, the danger is that in the face of inflation and people having to, yeah, their, their incomes aren't necessarily keeping up with the inflation, is that the right wing of politics start to say, well, hang on a second, it's always easy to find a scapegoat. We know that very well in Australia politics, right? Is to say that it's because of the greening of the economy. You're hurting, your hip pocket and the inflation that's hitting you and the cost of bread and beer and you know whatever else is going up because we have to fund this green revolution we've got going on. Then we could have a swing in voting. In democratic, um, in democratic countries, and swing to the right, and they use the greening as a scapegoat. Now that's that's a bit of a danger, right? With what we've got with inflation coming out, it's not, but it's the perception and reality again. So that's a little bit of a danger that kind of lurks out there. Um, but here in Europe, where I'm living, it's it's gone far too far now for the right to really sort of un, un, 
you know, unpick it in that way. Was there, was there but, much, but it is real, right? From someone, someone from uh, obviously an Australian background living in Europe, um, we had, you know, the previous government was attending COP26 and, and kind of stood out of some of the uh, agreements, I guess you could say, it, mm -hmm. particularly with regards to methane. Um, was, has there been a noticeable change in terms of reporting? Like, because you'd be keeping track of when they say Australia on the on the Swiss news or something, you'd be you'd be you know your ears would come up. Has there been a has there been a noticeable change in opinion in within Europe around the the, the election in Australia? And now oh, we've now got a government that seems to be maybe more more listening to to um, well, this well, we narrative around carbon. We don't really know yet. Well, 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 uh, well I, yes, but yes. I mean, there was. I mean, look, I, I live, I live ten minutes from the French border here, right? The uh, the submarines wasn't. I had to take the Australian. <laughs> I, I had to take the Australian sticker off the back of the car, frankly, before I got keys ripped down the side of it. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, look, here in Europe, um, I would say generally they're pretty happy to see the change in government in Australia from numerous perspectives, um, but particularly from a from a climate perspective. Um, it's not as extreme as seeing, seeing Trump lose the election, should I say, but it's, um, it's definitely, you know, that kind of bias here in Europe. I mean, Europe's, Europe's very egalitarian in a lot of ways, um, very attuned to the environment. Um, the European Union sees itself as a leader in, in the space and I think, you know, most, most data would point to that's correct. So seeing the change in government in Australia, I think, has been received, well, no, I think it has been ex received extremely well over here. So now with your, with your accent, you're a little bit more, you get served a bit quicker in the local coffee shop nowadays, now that you, you know, you're considered to be a bit more friendlier now? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can go back to France now. <laughs> I'm going to go and buy another Australian sticker for the back of the car. <laughs> right, well, I reckon we could probably get into the, the end of it now. I... I thought it was really interesting, and I think you've explained it again really well. Because I think every time I go to a carbon thing, I get walking with more questions than answers. Mm. In that there's so much complexity in, in, involved in it, but it's just another commodity. That's all it is. It's a it's a shame. Yeah. Um, it's a shame, Andrew. Just with the you're about to wind it up, but I don't know if glasses. You better say something. You go ahead before I say yeah, something. Yeah, look. You know, you said about the complexity of it too, and, and it's just another commodity market. I think we just have to be a little bit careful with that terminology, another commodity market. I mean, we there definitely is is the analogy is there and the trajectory moving from opacity to transparency and inclusion and participation. Yes. But we see it more like a bond market, right? So if you go and if you have mm, a risk appetite yeah. to buy triple B bonds, for example, you don't just go out and buy random triple B bonds. You go out and do your research on the companies that got triple B. Right, and then you deploy your capital into those into those into those companies' triple B rated bond. Right, that's like this market. So it's not it's it's hard to commoditize it. People are trying to group like projects into tokens and all kinds of fancy. Yeah, stuff. yeah. So, it's, 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 so just just a little you know a little nuance there on on the commoditization. Because obviously you could have triple A, which is all seventeen SDGs covered in those. Because you you could package up different projects. You're, you're right, and that's what that's what some people in the market do. And, and look, we do that from some clients too who want to have custodian accounts, like a corporate who says, I want this kind of project profile. So we'll get eight or so projects and we'll wrap them for them and then we'll manage that on their behalf, right? Um, so, yes, you can kind of do it like that. And, and 
it can go that way. I would say for our listeners too, or your listeners, sorry, on this podcast too, it's more like wheat. There's no perfect wheat and it's got, you know, a variety of different... Oh, don't tell it, Australians that Australian wheat uh, is the best in the world. Same as Argentinian wheat, British wheat, Russian wheat. Uh, it's all, all the best in the world. But, you know, it's, yeah, well, the Australian wheat board used to brand it, right? I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's specific to different kind of usages and that's more like... So the, the, if we're talking commodities, the carbon market is more like wheat than it is like corn. Corn's much more generic, much more commoditized, right? Corn is corn is corn is corn, essentially. No. So in the grain world, carbon markets are like wheat, not like corn, if that helps. Yeah. It does. That makes it sense. Does. Makes sense. It's like barley, malt or feed. Not as simple as that, but that's something we've been More complex than that. We, uh, we nearly won. I was going to go off on a very slight tangent. I nearly did when we were talking about you in the local coffee shop or getting across to France at some stage, Glassy, but um, I, I'm getting a very strong um, Hugh Jackman vibes on this. Uh, <laughs> are you I, I, I was going to say that earlier. When we started, I was going to say, for, for those who uh, aren't listening with me, Andrew Glass does look a bit like Hugh Jackman. And, and sounds like him, I reckon. I don't yeah. know, maybe it's just... So I've taken a screenshot while we're chatting before. I'm going to put it up on Twitter just just so that the listeners that are interested can have a look and see because... I had to keep fucking stopping myself thinking, am I talking to Hugh Jackman? Have you, have you, been, have you been mistaken in the streets of, uh, of uh, Geneva? or uh... when, when, when he's walking down with his Aaron Williams. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> Aaron Williams and Akubra. And... It, 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 it has happened now and again. I should use it more, actually. <laughs> it happens with me all the time. I get accused of being Begbie. From train spotting. <laughs> that's usually that's usually because you're stabbing someone. That's what you're <laughs> well, it could be worse for all of us, right? If someone says you look like Danny DeVito, well, that's not so bad. That's a bit that's a bit rude, Andrew. You're a guest on this podcast, <laughs> and referring to Matt as Danny DeVito just because. <laughs> <laughs> right, oh, it's been it's been really fun. I've, I've enjoyed yeah. that, and it's good because you've got a market's viewpoint on it instead of. It's not an airy fairy view on it, which is good. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, thanks for coming along, taking the time out in the morning of your day, and uh, hope you had fun. Yeah, yeah it was good. Fun. It was really, really interesting, and uh, I've learned a bit. Hopefully, the listeners did as well. So, uh, thanks for coming on, Glassy, and uh, we'll uh, we'll see you when you got nothing on. Cheerio. Super. Come visit anytime. <laughs>